Hello folks, so tonight's reading is uh, from chapter 7 of Luke and it's going to begin at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story we've just read recording this encounter between you and the woman and Simon and the guests. And whether we've been hearing that story for the first time or we are so familiar with this story, we pray that you'd speak into our hearts through it and draw us closer to you. Take what I've prepared, please, Lord, and and use it to lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm still in my relatively early days at St. Michael's and I'm learning about us as a church. 
and I see that we have people who love sitting at the back. I, I, I wonder if I should preach my sermon from halfway down as a way of getting you nearer the front, but high at the back, you're very welcome. And to anyone watching online, we're very pleased that you are. The evening sermon series is entitled Living Well in Testing Times, but actually it could equally well be entitled Living Well in Any Time. What we're looking at each week are facets of our life, which I think to live a whole life, we need to learn how to do this stuff. And tonight is a rather surprising subject. It, it's really focusing on learning to worship the Lord with a soft and tender heart. But you'll know more by the end of the sermon about exactly what I mean. Then that title might give the game away. How to develop and keep a tender heart. We know that medically speaking, if you go to a doctor, one of the things they will check up is your heart condition. And it's not a surprise to us that we know keep the ticker going because if, if you don't you're in big time trouble if you read the scriptures you will discover quite quickly too that the heart is considered all important in fact the writer to the proverb says this above all else so you wonder your ears kind of prick up oh yes above all else what above all else guard your heart because it's a wellspring of life and it seems to me that just as you might go to see a cardiologist to check your heart condition, you can go to the scriptures and it will check your and my heart condition. But there's one important thing you need to know before we go any further, that when the scriptures refer to our hearts, they have a slightly different idea of the composition of how our body is made up. We think of a heart as a centre of romance and love and emotion and things like that. And that's not actually how the scriptures think of our heart. They think of our hearts as being the central processing unit, if you like, the control center of our lives. In a way, more like your brain, I suppose, in our, our modern day understanding. But the imagery works. And there are two things, at least, that we're told to watch out for with our heart condition. A hard heart we're told it is, is not desirable. And a hard heart is described in scripture as being irresponsive to God. And so we're told in Hebrews, for example, quoting from the Psalms, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. It, we, our expression for that would be don't turn a deaf ear. And another thing that we're asked not to do is to have a divided heart. We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength, yes? And, and if your heart gets divided, if your way of thinking, if your focus towards God gets fragmented, you're, you're cruising for a bruising. Most of the time, we have no idea what's going on in someone's heart. I'm looking around at you. Apart from three of you that are asleep, I have no idea what's going on in your heart. No, I'm kidding. But you don't, you don't know what's going on in my heart. I don't know what's going on in yours. But scripture tells us again, very near the beginning in the book of Genesis, actually, that God saw 
the evil that was in man's heart and it grieved him. There is nothing secret between us and God. He, he, he understands, he knows, he perceives the thoughts of your heart and my heart, which is a bit sabering, is it not? And if you want an instant indicator of what's going on in someone else's heart, a kind of lateral flow test, they will give the game away through what comes out of their mouth. If you spend enough time with someone, uh, you get to know what they're thinking. It flows out. You can't help but do so, says Jesus. It would be beneficial for you and me to develop and keep a tender heart towards God for a number of reasons. Number one, I hate the thought of growing old and cranky. And I hope you do too. And there's no reason why that should be the case. But somehow in my mind, I guess through a number of opportunities of going to visit people in their old age, I don't think there's any science to this. I haven't checked it out. So it's just kind of Rupert's conclusion. It might be complete rubbish. But it somehow seems to me that what goes on in the core of a person gets amplified and magnified as they get older. And I've met people who are wonderfully gentle, effusive, and, and great company in old age, and I've met people who were not. And I'd rather be a gentle and, and an approachable soul and kind and loving to be with than cranky. And I think what goes on in your heart will, to some extent, determine that. But more important than that, this story, as we shall see, this incident, as we shall see, of what we bring in our heart towards God really matters to him. Really matters. We don't bring God much that blesses him. But our worship and our praise and our devotion does. And although God knows the secrets of our hearts, we don't generally, as I've said, know what's going on. But I find a very interesting thing about this story, that had we been there, suppose we'd been living in the house of, um, or just visiting the house of Simon the Pharisee that night so long ago. And you'd seen all the players involved in this story, Simon the Pharisee, which as Luke tells us over three times, this took place in his house, we're meant to get the point. If we'd seen him, if we'd have seen the woman off the streets, and if we'd have seen Jesus, and if we'd have seen the crowds, because there were other crowds at the table and in the house, we wouldn't have had a clue what was going on in their hearts, in their minds. But the way Luke tells the story, we do have a clue. Because he reveals it. So we're not, it's not guesswork I'm talking about tonight. It, we're let in to the secrets. So let me talk us through it and point out a few things that will be helpful. Well, as I've said, um, this does take place in Simon the Pharisee's house. And I'm keen that we notch up a few things in favour of poor Simon, because he comes out of this incident rather poorly. So I want us not to overlook the fact that, number one, he was a Pharisee, and that was a good thing. The, the Pharisees, as far as they knew their own skin, were the custodians of God's reputation. They really were making an effort to learn God's laws. It was very common for a Pharisee to learn the five books, first five books of the Bible off by heart. That's not a bad effort. And, and they stood 
jealously and zealously guarding God's name, reputation, and law. That's when he got out of bed in the morning, he didn't get out of bed with an attempt to be offensive. He, he was trying very much, as he thought, to please the living God. So that's in his favour. Secondly, he invites Jesus into his house, and that's hugely in his favour. There are not many people who invite Jesus, according to the Gospels that I can see of, into their home for hospitality. So you know, he's doing some things right you could say he's an open-hearted sort of fellow, because I think he was, outwardly at least. Although we'll discover very quickly, he's strangely unprepared for this lunch party or supper party. And it takes so many turns to be unexpected, as indeed life does, when you invite Jesus into your life. Now, as a little bit of an aside, when Liz and I had recently moved to Cambridge and we were in a situation of not knowing very many people there, we had some friends from a different place who said, oh, we've got some great friends in Cambridge. We'd love to introduce you. Why don't you invite us to supper with them? And so we said, sure, we don't know a soul that lives in this city. That sounds like a good idea. So we had them to supper and um, it all seemed to be going pretty well. And we got, got um, through our supper. It was very enjoyable until at the very last minute when we were in the hall and I was giving the man, his coat, and he, he, in a very quiet and friendly way, took me aside and he said, Louis, it's been a, been a nice evening, thank you very much for having us, and we've really enjoyed it, but I wonder if I could have a quick word with you before others do later, and you might feel a bit embarrassed. Uh, you've been calling me John all evening, and actually my name's James. So um, I kind of looked suitably embarrassed and said, oh, you know, I'm really, really sorry. And the gloss went over that evening, you know, kind of wore off, and the story actually has a sequel, which I'll come to later. Well, for Simon, this event took an unexpected turn with the arrival of an uninvited guest. And we don't know her name. And from Luke's account, we don't know her age. We don't know if she was pretty or if she was dirty or if she was clean or if she was dignified. But we do know that she was drawn to Jesus. And in case you're wondering, as I've sometimes wondered, how did this woman gate-crash the party? Apparently, you know, houses were very, very open in those days, and you literally could just walk in. And um, that's evidently what she does. And it, it's quite an eyewitness account, it would appear, in Luke's account, verse 38. She stood behind Jesus and his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. And she comes right up to him and breaks open this alabaster jar of perfume and anoints Jesus with it. And as she does say, she just can't keep it together at all. She loses it. Her tears flow and she adores Jesus and it shows. And I'm imagining that she is shaking as she washes his feet and kisses his feet even. And now she's weeping as she pours this perfume onto Jesus' feet. Well, we know, don't we, from all that we read in the Gospels, that there are not many times when Jesus is appreciated in his own lifetime. There are far more times where he's attacked and accused 
and criticized and put down and people plot for his life. There are so few times when anything like this happens. So it's a rare memory, a rare moment of appreciation and it's worth just pausing and drinking that in. And as I say, on the face of it, it's a story of when, the, when God came to dinner. But thanks to the dialogue, we can see it's also the story of a study of three hearts, really. That's the angle I'm going to look at tonight anyway. I know there's more that can be said, I'm not touching on. But just from that point of view, what's going on in Simon's heart? Well, we're told. In his head, he's thinking, this man, Jesus, he's not much of a prophet. He's a jumped up prophet if ever there was one. Because if he were a prophet, he'd know this woman who's touching him like this, and well, she's a sinner. And he'd know that, and he'd put a stop to it, verse, 20, verse 39. And he's thinking to himself, this kind of scene, it's reprehensible, it's undignified, it's over the top. It's not what I'm used to in my house, and I have no intention of getting used to it. And how did he express all of this, Simon, in a look? How do you think that Jesus recognized his attitude? He just saw right to the core. Well, Simon's hardly had time to think these thoughts and formulate them than Jesus actually shows what kind of a prophet he really is, and he proves his credentials. And this is how he does it. He tells Simon exactly what he's been thinking. He lays bare the secrets of his heart. And the way he does this, Jesus does this, is he exposes Simon by telling a story. Incidentally, the, I sometimes wish that you could buy a Bible which was color-coded with different gifts of the Spirit because I think you'd have to color-code much of this story with the gift of discernment of spirits, you could say. And he, he is discerning, or maybe it's a word of knowledge, he is discerning what exactly is going on. No one's told him, he just picked it up. Simon hasn't opened his mouth to say what he was thinking, but Jesus knows. And the story Jesus tells is very simple, and it's about two people, as you know, and they're both in debt, one with a relatively small debt and one with a huge debt. And they're both unable to pay, says Jesus, and they're both forgiven. And Jesus asked Simon a question, so which of these two people who are in debt do you think will love the most? And Simon wins the prize by answering correctly. He says, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. And the conclusion of the story is Jesus looking at the two of them, the woman and Simon, and saying, her many sins were forgiven, verse 47, and so she loved much. And this is portrayed how much she loves by the way she behaves. The fact that she has enormous courage Courage to come close to Jesus. I love that. Just imagine a woman who's lived this kind of a life. 
Imagine the courage it takes to walk into a Pharisee's house. And imagine how secure she must have been in the fact that Jesus was not going to reject her, that she would come so close to him. And she would kneel down and anoint him. You know, when it struck me once that if you're kneeling to wet someone's feet with your tears, they can easily kick you in the face. But there's no way Jesus would have done that. And the woman knows that. And she expresses her devotion and love for Jesus with this enormously extravagant gesture as well. Because there's no doubt it cost her dear that alabaster jar of perfume. And she risked scorn and she took it on because she knew that she'd been forgiven much and she loved much. But, says Jesus, turning to look at Simon, you gave me the cold shoulder when she gave me a warm embrace. You didn't see the need to acknowledge me in any way as king, but she anointed my feet with her ointment. And what's scary in this story, isn't it, is how much easier it is to side with Simon initially than with the woman. It's almost like we play that game, simple Simon says, and so do we. We, we can understand exactly why Simon felt as he did and the embarrassment of such a hullabaloo in his house. But Simon's big mistake, amongst other big mistakes, is he's misjudged the man who's come for dinner. It's not just that he's got his name wrong. He's got his whole being wrong. It doesn't really matter if you're called James or John or Jesus, actually, but if you're Saviour and Lord and you don't recognise him, then you are going to be in trouble later. I've always thought it's rather amazing. You know, if someone, if someone, heaven forbid, if someone came forward now and, and worshipped me, knelt down and worshipped me, I think, you know, I'd be first to tell them to stand up that it's ridiculous, that's not what they should be doing. And you'd be second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. But when it happens to Jesus... He doesn't berate the woman for worshipping him. He ticks Simon off for being slow to worship him. He was comfortable being worshipped. Why? Because he is God. The amusing sequel, or somewhat amusing sequel, to the story I told you about calling a chap by the wrong name, was uh, quite a number of months later, over six months later, I had occasion to catch an early morning train from Cambridge to London. And as I stood on Cambridge Station... I looked up and there was this chap called whatever he was, John, who I called James, or back to front the other way around, I can't remember. And um, I saw him and I thought, my, now's my chance to make amends. And so I rushed up to him and said, lovely to see you, James. How terrific. And he looked absolutely blank. He just looked straight through me. Didn't recognise me from Adam. So I said, oh, I'm the fellow who handed you the dinner and I called you by the wrong name all, all through the evening. And I think at that the penny dropped, but it also dropped with him that he hadn't recognised me. Now, it doesn't really matter if, if he didn't recognise me, but there's absolutely no way that God will fail to recognise you and me when we stand before him. There's no way that when Simon would meet Jesus later, that Jesus will scratch his head and say, I know I've seen you somewhere, but who are you and what do you like? It really matters what we bring 
to Jesus. Well, there is no doubt, is there, which of the two loved Jesus more, Simon or the woman? So look again at the heart of the, pic- of the people in this picture. Cold-hearted, half-hearted, large-hearted, and fully surrendered. And where are you in that spectrum? Where am I? What happens when your heart gets cold? Well, I think one of the things that happens, or can so easily happen, is you don't worship at all. You become an onlooker. You become a critic of the situation. I read this in a, in a book the other day. In church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurglings. He wasn't spitting or humming or kicking or tearing the hymnals or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. And finally, his mother jerked him around in a stage whisper that could be heard in a a little theatre off Broadway, said, stop that grinning. You're in church. And with that, she gave him a belt. And as the tears rolled down his cheeks, added, that's better, and returned to her prayers. And suddenly I was angry. And it occurred to me that the entire world's in tears. And if you're not, then you better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with a tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the happy God, the smiling God, the God who has a sense of humour to have created the likes of us. And whatever was going on in that mother's heart, it it was hard-hearted, it was cruel, it was judgmental, it was far far from anyone whose heart has been touched by the love of God. But happily, the opposite is also true. That when our hearts are filled with the Spirit of God, unquestionably one of the things the Holy Spirit does is tenderize our hearts, bring them alive. This is set out for us in Ezekiel in many places, but God says, I'll take out of you a heart of stone and I'll give you a responsive heart. And you will have seen this too in churches when worship happens. I came across this and and I, I could ask you when you think it was written and who it was written by, but it's written by St. Augustine. So it's quite dated. You will see him singing with intense emotion, with the expression on his face adapting itself to the spirit of the psalm and with tears often coursing down his cheeks. Yes, he sings with the very marrow of his bones, his voice, face and profound sighs, all showing how deeply he's stirred. He was wrapped up in adoration of the Lord. His heart is being kept soft. And I think in just the same way as sometimes we encounter people who have fallen in love or fallen in love, and they start doing the unexpected, and they become, dare one say it, more human. And often it flowers into generosity, and they do extravagant things. Why not? Because they're in love. So it is with people who have been touched by God's love. And we become more human and more humane and more wholesome and more generous. And that's the key to bringing our worship towards the Lord. And that's the key to devotion as well. 
J.C. Ryle, who was Bishop of Liverpool quite a few years ago, over 100 years ago now, and he wrote about uh, what is necessary before Christians can be more productive. And he reflects like this, all desire to see among Christians more commitment, more self-denial, more obedience to Christ's commands. Well, what will produce these things? Nothing but love. And however much the world may sneer at feeling in religion, the great truth still remains. Feeling is the secret of doing. The heart must be engaged for Christ. It will always be the loving person who will do the most for Christ. It's taken me years to realize this, that we shouldn't be afraid to express our feelings in worship. And sometimes modern songs are critiqued and criticized for all sorts of things like, well, they're rather transitory. No one will be singing this song in 30 years' time. Or they're rather lightweight. Or they're rather repetitive. Or they're not musically very complex. Well, let me break it to you. They're not setting out to be. They're, they're merely setting out to be expressions of devotion to Jesus from a heart full of love, from a heart that is loved. What this woman got right in her worship is that it was extravagant. It cost her something, a lot, evidently. And right through scripture, that is a theme of worship. Do you remember in 2 Samuel, Chapter 24, verse 24, David says, I will not offer the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. It's always costly to bring our worship to the Lord. This woman took the risk of being misunderstood. And outwardly, let me break it to us, we always stand a risk of being misunderstood when we worship God with all our heart. People who don't love him will never understand why we should bring our devotion to the Lord. And it will always be costly. I remember a visit to Uganda many, many years ago, and in an area of enormous poverty, the people had built a cathedral to God. And using one's rational mind, one could say, what a paradoxical thing to do. You couldn't quite say what a waste of money, but you could criticize the money being spent like that. But worship is always like that. Worship is always a costly gift because you love God so much. And worship is challenging as it was for this woman, as it is for us, because if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we're going to have to be vulnerable. She was immensely vulnerable, as I've pointed out. We have to open our hearts to the Lord and let ourselves be vulnerable towards him. And that's not necessarily easy to do, but it's necessary to do. The heart I haven't really looked at is Jesus's heart. And it's important to know he loved Simon. He loved the crowds. He loved the woman. He loves you. He loves me. And if they would have asked him, he would have received 
them close to him and he would have filled them with his love. I think it's shocking when we encounter people who love God more than we do. And that's what happened to Simon that night. It must have been incredibly threatening for him. He refers to her as that shameful woman, but actually she's a woman who put him to shame. It's sometimes shocking for people who traditionally go to church to find other people newly coming into a church to worship him, who maybe have just been following Jesus for a day, full of praise and totally vulnerable and way open and praising the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul and strength. And sometimes they wish it was more bottled up. But I've got a suspicion that God would rather listen to a cacophony from people whose hearts are full of love for him than a perfectly sung motet performed by people who reject him. Don't you think that? And I want us to see that Jesus loves, loves, loves. And our correct response is to return the love. You know that Queen Victoria in her coronation, which took place in Westminster Abbey, very near the end of the service. And they have always done these things marvelously well, you can imagine it, but very near the end of the service, the, the whole of the Abbey was filled with the sound of this magnificent choir singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And in the service order, what was meant to have happened was uh, the congregation and the choir were to stand and sing the Hallelujah Chorus and the Queen was to remain sat on her throne with the crown on her head. But it didn't turn out that way. Because as the Hallelujah Chorus echoed around Westminster Abbey, those close enough saw Queen Victoria get up from her throne, take the crown off her head, hold it down at waist level and bow her head in recognition of the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ as he sang King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And my guess is, as we worship him, that is at the heart of our worship. And it's one of the reasons worship is so hard to do. Because we have to say, whoever we are, I'm taking the crown off my head. I'm inviting you again to be Lord of my life. And I want to submit to you. Friends, this talk comes as a warning to all of us. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't let your heart get cranky. Make sure as a discipline, we as a church must make sure as a discipline that we worship the Lord in spirit and truth week in, week out. My only regret tonight is there aren't 10 times more people here to worship the Lord. Not because I want 10 times more people here because that would be fun, but the main point is so the Lord could see 
how revered he is, how loved he is, how appreciated he is. In three weeks' time, we have a carol service here. Amazing, isn't it? Three Sundays' time. And um, we're deliberately making it a guest service. And, and my hunch is that many people will take an invitation to a carol service who will not normally come to church. And so it is something of an opportunity for them to meet other Christians and um, get to know that you're all pretty normal, really, and very nice. And they can hear something of Jesus Christ. But God willing, they will connect with the presence of the Lord too. I've been going to carol services for more years than I can remember. But it wasn't till 1980 that I got to understand one song that's often sung. And we'll sing it, I hope, this year. And the chorus, or if not the chorus, one of the verses goes like this. What shall I give him, poor as I am? Some of you are ahead of me now and you know where this is going. If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what I can, I give him. Can you complete your sentence? Give my heart. Why don't we do that? Why don't we just have a moment of quiet before Dan leads us in some songs of praise? And let's just do business with the Lord. And in a secret place for your heart, tell him. If your heart's growing cold, tell him. If you don't feel like praising him tonight, but you know that you ought to, tell him. If your heart is overflowing with praise and gratitude, tell him. If you need a new touch of the Holy Spirit so that your heart is tenderized and the heart of stone can become responsive again, invite him to do that. Remember, he knows the secrets of your heart already, so you're not letting him into something he can't see. You're just being honest. Let's wait upon the Lord for a moment or two while we do that. 